Well, I know a lot of you guys are with me in that you're morning this morning, and probably will be for the next, like, nine months or so. So, um, not the way I wanted to my 2022 to end, okay? But it is what it is, and I hate sports. <laughs> so, whatever. Um, hey, got a question uh, to start off this morning. Have you guys ever um, had an impression of somebody that uh, as you got to know them a little bit more, you realized that your impression of them was just completely off? Does that ever happen? Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and this could go both ways. Um, sometimes you meet somebody and they're like, uh, you know, they're, you're thinking to yourself, maybe it's just a little bit of interaction, but you don't know them all that well. And you're like, wow, that person's really cool. Like, I could spend some time with that person. Like, I really, really like working with this person. And then some time goes by, and you get to meet them, and you get to know them a little bit more. And then you're like, like man, this person drives me crazy. Like, I can't stand working with this person. This is driving me nuts. Like, does that ever happen? Okay, all right, like we're all there. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you met somebody um, and uh, maybe it's the first time. So this is a first impression where you're just like, hey, that person, like, I don't know, we're just not going to connect. That person kind of a, like how, like those types of people, you know, we kind of categorize them as like those people really drive me crazy. And then you end up, after you get to know them a little bit better, you end up becoming friends. You know what I mean? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm sitting right here with them because I married them. You know, that type of thing. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but it goes both ways. Um, I remember the first time I met some of you guys, right, and uh, got those impressions. They're mostly good, mostly good. I actually remember the first time I met AJ. Um, I had known AJ and uh, known of AJ. I knew AJ's family. And uh, the first time I met AJ, it was actually here at church at Grace. And it was actually at, at our Fremont campus years ago. And um, AJ was wearing a full suit to Sunday morning church. And I thought that was a little bit different because he was the only one in the entire building wearing a full suit. And so I was like, that's weird, but he knows how to dress, okay? So that was my first impression of like AJ. And we all have, and now we're really good friends, right, AJ? Okay, he has to say yeah. So, um, but yeah, we all have impressions of people and we all have this idea of how people are. Um, a lot of it is before we even get to know, um, know other people or get to know people. Unfortunately... Um, well, fortunately, I guess, we have this impression of Jesus in our minds. Like, we all have this idea of who we think Jesus was or who, how we think Jesus was and, um, and what Jesus was like. But unfortunately, I think a lot of us, we, we get these ideas of who Jesus was like from, like, pictures and stained glass windows and really, really, really lame, bad 70s and 80s Christian movies and, uh, you know, the Sunday school flannel graphs and Honestly, like bad sermons. Like we, this, we get this idea of who Jesus is and we get this impression of Jesus. And for a lot of us, the idea that we have of Jesus is actually nothing like what Jesus was actually like, which is kind of crazy and it's not good. So today what we're going to be doing is we are starting a brand new series um, in the, we're calling it in the, the book of John, all right? We're going to be studying the book of John or what John writes for us, uh, the account of Jesus's life that he writes for us. And we're going to be in this for like 17 weeks, okay? It's going to be a long one, maybe the longest series we've ever done. Uh, but I'm excited about it. It's one of the most well-known books of the Bible. And it's a guy who is writing about Jesus who is actually there. He's an eyewitness, John. And, um, and it's going to take us a while to get through this. And so um, what I hope for us as we go throughout the series is that we're going to be able to meet Jesus, 
okay? We'll be able to get to know Jesus better. We'll be able to get to know who exactly Jesus is. And what it's going to start doing is it's going to start refining our image or refining our idea or our impression of who Jesus actually was. And it will become, hopefully for most of us, a little more accurate. And so today what we're specifically going to do is we're going to look at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry, and we're going to see how he kind of launches all that. And today we're going to be in John chapter 2. We're actually going to read the entire chapter together. Some of you guys are like, <gasps> but yeah, we're going to do it, and it's going to be good. And, um, and so yeah, we got a lot to go through today. So you with me? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's kick this thing off. First, let me give you the context of what's going on in this time in history. Uh, got to remember the Jewish people, we just got out of Christmas, but the Jewish people have been waiting for this promised Savior that God had promised them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So at generation after generation after generation, they've been waiting for this Messiah, this Savior, whatever that means. Like they don't exactly know what that's going to look like. They're not sure, you know, what exactly that means. They just know that someday there's going to be king, a king who's going to come, he's going to save them. And uh, they knew a few things about him, like he was going to be born in Bethlehem and stuff like that. And what do we see on the first Christmas, right? Well, we see some shepherds, some an-, an angel comes and like tells the shepherds, hey, the king's here. So they go and they worship him. And then what do we see like a year later? We see the wise men, they travel. They're like foreign guys who have like bits and pieces of the Old Testament and they're reading that and they're like, the king's got to be here. Like this is the time. This is what Daniel told them, in, you know, all this stuff. And so they go, they travel from wherever they came from, the east, whatever that means, and they go and they worship Jesus when they find Jesus. And, but besides that, not really anybody else knows. You know, Herod knows, or at least he's told by the wise men, he tries to kill Jesus. But other than that, not very many people are really aware that this king, that this Messiah, that the Savior that they've been waiting for for generations is finally here and is like amongst them. And we don't really know much about Jesus for the next 30 years or so. And we don't have, the Bible doesn't really tell us. Um, we know that Jesus was a kid, and then uh, Jesus grew into a teenager. I mean, can you imagine Jesus as a teenager? See, that's something we never think about, right? Like Jesus popping zits and stuff like that, you know? Like, <laughs> he's dealing with the same stuff we all had to deal with. Um, you know, like <laughs> the perfect teenager. That was Jesus. Uh, we know that, you know, Jesus, he lived throughout his 20s. Uh, at somewhere along the line, his dad, Joseph, probably died because he's not mentioned anywhere, anywhere else. And we know that Joseph was a carpenter. And so uh, Jesus, we can probably safely assume that Jesus learned the, the family business along with his half-brothers. And they probably took on the family business and were carpenters as well during this time. And um, they took care of mom. And so, you know, we can assume all that. But we don't really know much about that. Um, other than that, around 30 years old, Jesus decides to go public, and he decides to start revealing who he actually is and why he actually came. And we know from, well, we talked about this last Christmas morning, a lot of people, or last week, which was Christmas morning, um, most people weren't here, but we'll, we'll review this in the, uh, during another week. But uh, Jesus, he calls his disciples, he gets, gathers them all together, and, um, and he, again, he starts revealing who he actually is and why he actually came. And so this is how Jesus begins uh, his, like, public ministry. It says, on the third day, um, this is the third day, probably three days after he gathers his disciples together for, like, the first time. He calls them, calls them, calls them. He's like, okay, you guys are my people. You guys are my crew. Three days after that, uh, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother, who was, 
Mary, I think. Yeah, Mary. Okay, you guys are a little timid there. Um, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So um, it's just kind of interesting to me, even just like stopping here just real quick. Like think about it. Somebody somewhere decided or thought, hey, you know who should we, we should invite to our big party? That Jesus guy. Yeah, I really want him. He's fun to be around. Like, let's get, let's make sure Jesus is there, and he's got all those, like, like all those, all, all those friends that kind of hang out with him now. Let's, let's get them to come as well. See, it's kind of interesting. We all have this, like, impression of Jesus. You know, we, we think of Jesus as, like, a guy who walked around in a white robe, and he um, walked around hugging children, petting lambs, and yelling at all the bad people. Like, that's what, that's what Jesus did in our minds. And it's interesting. That's how we view Jesus. We don't view Jesus as, like, fun, Right? I mean, naturally, I, I, this is, I'll be the first one to admit, like, naturally, I don't like necessarily, when I think of, like, Jesus, I don't think of, like, fun. Do you? You don't want to, you're afraid to answer? Is that what's going on? Like, oh, I don't know what the right answer is. He's tricking me into this question. Like, I, I just don't. Like, you know, I, what do I, how do we view Jesus? I view Jesus like, you know, like, kind of the fun sucker out of the room. Like, can't do anything fun around him. You know, he's gonna, he'll be like, sin, sin, you know, sin. Like, that's how we view Jesus. But Jesus was fun. Like, it's just something that's hard for us to picture, but that's exactly what it was. Here, Jesus, he specifically invited to this big, big party. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, usually when I'm trying to get people to come over and, like, hang out, I'm not picking, like, the boringest people. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not picking the people who are super annoying and, like, you know, bother me at all. I'm picking, like, the fun people, the people that are fun to be around. And it's not like, by the way, that, that anybody knows who Jesus, that Jesus is God yet. So it's not like people are, like, Someone's trying to earn brownie points, like the guy, the groom, in this case, like he's going, oh, um, I, I need to invite Jesus so someday he will invite me, you know, I need to invite him to my party so someday he can invite me to the heavenly party, you know, that's what, you know, he's not like trying to impress him, he's not like trying to, trying to get some, you know, some brownie points to get to heaven or anything like that. No, they wanted Jesus there. Actually, Jesus, if you didn't know, was known for going to parties. I mean, in a sense, Jesus was kind of like a party animal. And guess what? The religious people hated it. They hated it. They gave him nicknames. They called him a, they called him a drunk. They called him um, a friend of sinners. And they hated that Jesus, he was always around, you know, he was always at parties and always hanging out um, with people who weren't always doing the right thing. And so it's interesting just to point out that Jesus was not of this world. You got to remember this, right? It's not like he did anything wrong or he ever sinned, but he was 100% totally in the world. He was. And that, by the way, if you remember correctly, is how God calls us as followers of him. That's how God calls us to live our lives as well. See, some of us, we do the exact opposite. It's like we shut the world out. We do whatever we can to shut the world out. We're going to protect our little family. We don't let any, like, worldly anything get in. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad all the time. I'm just saying, hey, Jesus was out there, and he was in the world, and God calls us to be in the world as well, but not of the world. Some of you guys, I mean, the honest truth, you just lost your fun, right? Like 30 years ago, okay? <laughs> you know, so, some of us, like, we're supposed to be fun, enjoyable people, okay? Not always, don't always have to be serious all the time. We, as Christians, should be generally liked. Like, people should like to be around us. We should be pleasant and fun to be around. At this point, especially at this point, Jesus was super liked. Like, everybody wanted to be around Jesus. It says, in the very next verse, it says, so they're at this party. They're doing this thing. 
all right? Uh, Jesus, he's with his disciples. Mary, she's there doing her thing as well. It says, when the wine ran out. Now, for us, we hear this and we're like, okay, what's the big deal? Like, yeah, bummer, you know, um, but not that big of a deal. What you got to understand, in this culture, super big deal. All right, this was like a huge, huge issue. This was a high honor, high shame culture. And basically what would happen is a groom would get engaged and the groom would have about a year or so to get like everything ready for his new family, for his wife and his new family. And not only that, he would have about a year to prepare for his wedding. And, and the, back then a wedding was like a party. And this wasn't like, you know, you go to a, a, the party at like, you know, Saturday at like three o'clock and you leave by seven, you know, that type of thing. These parties were like a lot of times days long. So these parties would go day after day after day after day. It was a really, really, really big deal. And the wedding was basically put on to demonstrate to the community and to the wife's family that uh, basically I'm a man and I can take care and I can, you know, take care of your daughter. And so that's what the wedding was. And that's what this party was basically for in celebrating this brand new family. And so for them, running out of drinks, specifically in this culture, which was wine, super embarrassing. I mean, it was a complete disgrace. This was like a social disaster. Like, think about the most embarrassing thing you've ever done. Like, this was worse than that because everybody there would have known and it would, like, party it ended. Like, you know, it just would have been super embarrassing. Basically, what it meant is that you as a host, you as the groom, the groom was the host, that you were unprepared for your own party. Not only that, maybe it was even worse than that, it might mean that you are cheap and basically tried to get away with the bare minimum of wine, because wine was expensive, and you just completely miscalculated, now everybody's going to know. Not only that, but it's even worse, because there could have been legal issues associated with running out of drinks and having the party in early, because legally, check this out, this is kind of crazy to me, legally, the groom has to provide a party at a certain standard, and if that standard is not hit, then the bride's family can actually press legal charges against the groom. So this was a big, big deal. I mean, can you imagine that? That would have been a terrible mess. So this was a big deal. You did not want to wine out, run out of wine or, or drinks at the party at all. I mean, they may have had like two or three more days left to go. I mean, this was, this was bad. And so when the wine ran out, and by the way, everybody that John is writing to as he's writing out his account, everybody who's reading this back in their culture is just like, oh, no, I cannot believe that. It says, Jesus' mother told him, she says, hey, they don't have any wine. Probably everybody's sitting at the table with Jesus, all of his disciples and everybody, they're just like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? That's so embarrassing. Like, man, that's, that's not good at all. I feel really bad for the groom. Like, what was he thinking? He didn't, he, he didn't have enough time. He had a whole year to prepare for this, and he messed that up. And so everybody's sitting at the table. They're just like, yikes. It's interesting to me that Mary goes and tells Jesus, right? Isn't it, like, she, just, she talks to Jesus. Basically what she's doing is she's asking him to do something about it. Maybe she's thinking, hey, Jesus, could you walk to the store? You know, like my mom used to do. Can you walk to the store? Can you grab this? And can you bring it? Maybe she's thinking that. Probably not, okay? What she might be doing, she might be giving him the little nudge, which if you ever ever had a mom before, you know exactly how that goes. She's giving you like the little nudge, like, hey, could you do something about this, knowing that you can you know what I mean? Like, can you whip some wine up real quick? Or, hey, you got any, like, tricks up your sleeve? Jesus? Like, like, can you fix this problem? You're a pretty resourceful guy. Like, you, you know, you're the smartest guy I know. You're Jesus. You know, and so what she does is she asks Jesus for a favor, just like we do. How many of you guys ask 
God for a favor, maybe once in a while, like you've been known. Let's be honest with ourselves. Probably most of our prayers when we talk to God, um, we're asking God for stuff. Can we all agree on that? Unless you're way better than me. Okay, maybe you are. I don't know. Um, you probably are. But uh, most of the stuff that we, when we pray to God, what are we doing? We're asking him for stuff. Hey, God, help me with this. Hey, could you deal with that? Can you heal it? You know, could you fix this problem or this problem? You know, here's Mary. She's asking Jesus. She's asking God for a favor. But the difference between us and Mary is that Mary knows who she's talking to. Like, she knows him. She's known him personally for like 30 years. She birthed him. Okay, she knows him pretty well. And maybe our problem is that when it comes to asking God for things is we just don't know who we're talking to. Like, I get it. We have an idea of what God is and who God is in our minds, and we've heard some Bible stories, and we have this impression in our head, whether it's right or wrong, that we don't really know. But we don't, like, I think a lot of us, we just don't know him. Like, we know about him or we know of him. But here, Mary knows him, right? And she has a need, and she asks and if you think about it, like in the grand scheme of life, like for Mary, and for, for Mary specifically, like running out of drinks at a party once that they attended, like it's just not that big of a deal. At least not for Mary. Yeah, for the groom, sure, because this might follow him for the rest of his life. But for Mary, just not that big of a deal. Nevertheless, she has a need, whether it's big or small, and she takes this need to Jesus. Why? Because she knows he could do something about it. Maybe she remembers that miracle that happened like 30 years before, you know, when she's like doing her thing and the angel just shows up and is like, hey, Mary, here's the deal. Um, I know you have all these plans, Mary. The, you're you're going to go marry Joe and it's going to be great. You have all these plans for your wedding day, but I'm about to blow all that up. Or, Mary, I know you're planning on, you know, moving to Nazareth with Joseph. You guys are going to start a family someday and I'm gonna, it's not going to happen even close to the way you think it's going to happen. All right, I'm about to blow all of this up. And then what happens? Mary miraculously gives birth to this child. All right, maybe she's thinking here in this moment like, hey, he was a miracle. Maybe he can do a miracle. All right, he was like, like the impossible happened with him. Maybe now he can do the impossible. And so she asks. And it's a reminder for us, by the way, that God challenges us to ask him for stuff. Isn't that kind of interesting? Like God, he, this, this picture that we have in the Bible is that God is a loving father, and he's saying, hey, I want you to ask. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give us everything that we asked for. By the way, I think a lot of times, or maybe even most of the time, it's safe to say that the things that we ask for actually aren't the best things for us. And so God tells us no a lot. Part of that's because of us. We're asking for dumb stuff, you know, all right, or stuff that we just don't know about it because God knows way more than we do. But God challenges us. He, it's not like he asks us to ask. It's he commands us to ask. He wants to hear our requests. He wants communication with us. And so that's what Mary does here. She asks. And probably everybody sitting at the table, including John, who's writing this, is just like, oh, man, all right, what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to respond to this? And Jesus responds. He says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Does that sound kind of harsh? Some of you guys have been like, I've been quoting scripture for you know, all my marriage. Like, you know, take out the trash. What's this got to do with me, woman? You know what I mean? All right, that's not good. Um, that's not, this, this sounds harsh. And to be honest, I've like looked into this a whole bunch. It actually is a little harsh. All right, Jesus, by the way, is, he's not being unloving towards his mom when he says this. But he is 
being to the point. And what he's actually doing here is he is distancing himself from his mom a little bit. Now, we've all done that before, right? Right? Okay, yeah, we've all distanced ourselves from our moms a little bit where we're like, you know, mom, you're not cool. Okay, I'm cool. I'm 14, you know what I mean? So you go stand over there. I'm doing my thing over here. Don't talk to me, you know, like that type of thing. That's not what's going on here. It's not like, you know, Mary comes up to Jesus and Jesus is like, I'm with my new friends, mom. You know, that's not what's going on here, okay? This is God saying, hey, Mary, I'm reminding you. Or Jesus saying, hey, mom, I'm God. You are a human. There's a difference between us. And then he tells you, he's like, my hour is not coming yet. He's like, this is not... It's not time, right? You're thinking on a human level, right? You're not thinking on the all-knowing God level. And so Mary, it's so interesting. Here, Jesus, he doesn't say yes and he doesn't say no. He kind of adjusts her thinking a little bit. He kind of corrects her a little bit. And then Mary, she's just like, she goes up to the servant. She's like, just do whatever he tells you to do. Like she moves the process on. She's like, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then John tells us, he says, hey, well, now six stone water jars had been set there for the Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons of water. And so Jesus said, hey, fill the, wa- fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. And so they filled them to the brim. So they're up, filled as much as they can. And says, so then he said to him, he says, all right, this is what I want you to do. All right, now go draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Can you do that? And they're like, oh, yeah, we could do that. And so they did it. And when the head waiter, he gets this, like, spoonful of water or wine, I guess, tasted the water. Um, it, it, was, it happened after it had become wine. So Jesus somehow does this miracle, right? It says the head waiter, he, did not, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they obviously knew. And probably like, you've got to be kidding. That worked. It says, so he called the groom, the head waiter. He called the groom and he told him. He's like, hey, here's the deal, man. What's going on here? What are you doing here? Everyone sets out the fine wine first. And then after people are all good and drunk, then you give them the inferior wine. But you have kept the fine wine until now. You get what he's saying here? It's like the, this head waiter, he's like, he's like the wedding planner, all right? This dude's in charge, okay? He's, he's got this all. Um, part of maybe running out of wine might be even partly his fault. And so he's just like, he gets all the, you know, he gets his new jars. He's got a bunch of wine and he tastes it. He's like, wow, this is some like really, really, really good stuff. So like when Jesus is making stuff, all right, he does it like the right way. And so um, he tastes that. He's like, this isn't how anybody runs a party. Usually when you're doing a party, you give people the, the tasty wine first when everybody's like with it you know, and all have their senses. And then he's like, and then when they get kind of good and drunk, that's when you give them, like, the junk wine, okay? You give them that. They don't know the difference. You say, you know, you you do it in that order. And so he's like, here's, you've done the opposite. You gave them the bad wine because, which was actually the groom's best wine that he had. And he's saying, this stuff is just way better. So here, you give them the bad wine first, but now you got the good wine. Like, this isn't at all what anybody ever does. What are you doing? And the groom's just like, Oh, I don't know where that even came. You know, the groom has no idea. And so Jesus did this, John tells us, the first of his signs. Now, question. Why did Jesus do this? Right? Like, did he do it because Mary asks him to? Uh, Partially, yeah, you know. Um, Maybe. Did he do this because this was super embarrassing? Like, the groom messes up, and so Jesus is kind of covering for him. Maybe a little part of it, you know, that, that could possibly be. But ultimately, what John's saying here is he's saying, hey, here's the deal. This is why Jesus did this. He did this as a sign. 
By the way, that's what all the miracles that Jesus does, every single miracle that he does, it's not to fix a problem or to necessarily heal us. Like, that's not the main thing. It's not to, oh, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to do this. No, the miracles that he did, all right, this is, it, they're, they're signs saying, here's Jesus saying, this is who I am. All right, he's not bragging. He's not like spiritual flexing saying, hey, check me out, wine, 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 wine. Pretty cool, huh? Now you can see, now you can, you know, walk. You know, he's not, he's not, he's saying, hey, this is who I am. I am different than you. And because he revealed just a sliver of his glory, John tells us that, that uh, his disciples believed in him. I mean, they see this with their own eyes. I mean, they're there for this. John, who's writing this, he's like, yeah, this happened. It was crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And they're like, how do you do this? Like, maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one that we've been waiting for for so long. And John tells us that this, that this is Jesus' first miracle. And by the way, this miracle, I'm assuming it left an impression on people. It definitely left an impression on the disciples. And so John's like, it was nuts. This is what happened. This is when we first started to believe. Then John shifts focus. It says, after this, uh, Jesus went down to Capernaum together with his mom, all right, Mary, and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there, but only for a few days. It says, the Jewish Passover was near. Now, the Jewish Passover, this was a huge festival that the Jewish people did every year. It was like eight days long, so it was a big deal. It was like Christmas every day. I mean, can you picture that? Uh, that would be so busy, we wouldn't know what to do. Okay, so that's kind of how it was. And so people, tens of thousands of people from all over the world would descend upon Jerusalem to take part in this festival. Now, this festival is something that God tells the Jewish people to do um, back, way back in the Old Testament. So this is actually a command by God that they do this, and it's to remind them about how God led them and how God rescued them out of slavery from Egypt and brought them into the, to the promised land that he had promised them. And, uh, and so that's what it's for. And so there's this huge festival going on. It's the Passover, and they're celebrating what God has done. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem with them. And so when they get to Jerusalem, they all start to, um, they all, I guess immediately, they go up to the temple, which was on, Jerusalem's kind of built on a hill, kind of like a small mountain. And on the top of that is the temple where they would worship God. And so in the temple, when they get there, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, the Old Testament, what we got to understand, the Old Testament required the Jewish people to offer sacrifices to God for their sin. It's called the sacrificial system. And it was actually God's system to show the people how serious sin was. I mean, think about it. By the way, this is, I think, one of our main issues living in the culture that we live in, is that we don't understand how serious our sin is. In fact, we kind of view sin as not serious at all because it's like, you know what, it's just not that big of a deal and uh, it doesn't mean anything and I didn't even mean to and God's forgiving and loving anyway and so who cares? Like that's how we view sin. Never in the Bible ever do we ever see sin in that way. In fact, the Bible tells us that God hates sin. And so because God hates sin, because sin is extremely serious, the old sacrificial system meant that an animal, specifically your animal, had to die to cover your sin. And so not only maybe this was hard to watch or hard to do, but this had a cost to it. And so they sacrificed these animals to God to cover temporarily their sin. 
And so during the Passover festival, you have tens of thousands of Jewish people from all over the world descending upon Jerusalem, and they're all ma- and a lot of them are making sacrifices for their sin at the temple. And so what was happening here specifically is that instead of you traveling with your sheep, you know, walking your sheep long distance, what could you do? Oh, you could just take your money. You could go buy an animal right there at the temple. You don't even have to walk the animal through Jerusalem. You could buy it right there at the foot of the temple, and, um, and then you can sacrifice that animal, and it's probably a lot easier because, you know, you have no attachment to it. And it's also extremely, extremely convenient. And so they try to make worshiping God as convenient for people as possible. Not only that, but you also have the money changers there. And these people, um, you got to remember, there's people coming from all over the world. They have all different kinds of foreign currency, but the religious leaders only only wanted a certain kind of money. And so these money changers would exchange the foreign money for the money that they preferred for a small fee, of course. Okay, so that's what they were doing. And so there's a few things wrong with this situation. Number one, there's people who are getting rich, specifically in the temple, off people who are trying to obey and worship God. Never a good thing. Okay, they're overcharging people. I mean, we all know how this is because most of us, we've been to Cedar Point. We've been in lines where it's super, super hot. And ironically, we are surrounded by water, but we really want, you know, water. And so we go to the vending machine. It's like eight bucks. You know, you're just like, this should be illegal. Like somebody, you know, price gouging here. You know, like this is bad. And so what do we do? We end up buying it anyway. So that's kind of the situation that was going on here. Not only do you have these people selling these animals to be sacrificed there, trying to make worship for God as easy as possible and as convenient as possible. You also got these money changers. And the best way I could describe these is uh, how many of you guys grew up like, like with me in the 90s going to uh, Chuck E. Cheese's? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's a few of us. Chuck E. Cheese is like the kid's dream. I know they still got them, but they're not as good now, so whatever. Um, I, yeah, never mind. So um, if you remember, like think back to your childhood going to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you go maybe for a birthday party or something, and it's like heaven on earth. You got games, you got pizza, you got animatronics, you know, you know, it's all over the place. And so you go there, and you got these little tokens, you know, that, you, that your mom has to buy. And then you, they're like, you're doing these machines, and out comes these tickets, and you collect all the tickets. And the more tickets you collect, the better prize that you could go and exchange them in for. You know what I'm talking about? Are you guys with me? Okay, all right. It's like, do you guys need to go check out a Chuck E. Cheese's? Because this, I promise, this is what happens. So anyway, that's what, that's what you do. And so you would go and you'd try to win the games and do as good as at all the games you possibly can. And so you could get more tickets and spit out at you. And you would gather all the tickets. And there was always that one kid who had way more tickets than everybody else. And you always hated him. But what you would do sometimes is you would try to, even sometimes you and your friends, you like band together your tickets. And so you'd go to the counter. And for me, like in the 90s, you know, you'd look at all the stuff that they would have. And they'd always have all this cool stuff. And you'd be like pointing out, I want the Nintendo. Nintendo 64, like if I could just get that, like my life will be, you know, fixed and will be perfect. And, and you hand over this like giant amount of tickets and they hand you like a little spider ring or something. You know, you're just like, <laughs> why? Because they, they control the exchange rate. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what spider, spider ring? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Stupid. Right. <laughs> I, every Halloween you got people trick-or-treating giving those things out. But uh, that's what you get. And you're just like, you know, you'd be so, as a kid, you're just like so bummed because you handed them a mountain of tickets. That's kind of what was going on here. You have these people who are the money changers. They own the exchange rate. They get to decide how much their good money in their minds 
cost you. And so that's what would happen. And they're cheating people. Not only that, it gets even worse. These people, where, they're, where all this is happening at, where this business is happening at, is actually inside the temple area, specifically in a place where the Gentile people were supposed to worship God. And so most of us, Gentile people, this is just Jewish, non-Jewish people, so that's probably maybe all of us in here. Um, we, if we lived back then, we weren't allowed to worship in the temple, per God. Kind of interesting there. But we did have a place designated for us to, to worship. And so the Jewish people, they were like, ah, let's put these businesses, let's put all these animals, let's put all these money changers, let's put all this stuff where those people are supposed to worship because they're not worth as much as us. And so this was a big, big problem. And religious leaders, what they're doing is they are using the very system that God set up to bring people closer to him to exploit God's own people. And so this angers Jesus. Now some of us, you're sitting there, you're just like, wait, what? Jesus ain't allowed to get angry. He's like meek and mild and, you know, forgiving and so peaceful. You know, that's how Jesus is. Like, that's, that's how I think Jesus is. But you got to understand, sin always bothers Jesus. Again, the Bible tells us that God hates it. And so Jesus is looking around. He sees some sticks or cords or whatever. He grabs some and he starts twisting them together. It says, and after making a whip out of cords... He drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and with their oxen. I mean, can you picture how this would have been for the disciples? Right, they're standing there. They've only been with Jesus for like a few days. You know what I'm talking about? And so they don't know Jesus like a lot. They've seen him do a miracle, and that was kind of crazy. And they're like still trying to figure all this out. And then uh, they go up to the temple, and they're probably thinking like, hey, Jesus probably is the Messiah. He's this king. He's going to become king. We're going to the temple. It's the Passover. Like, this is the perfect time for Jesus to kind of step out and say, hey, everybody follow me. I'm your king. I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to save us. Um, I'm going to save the whole country of Israel. We're going to, you know, politically and, you know, every, in every way. And so they're thinking, hey, this is probably going to happen. We're going to be like second in command. It's going to be awesome. And then here's Jesus. He's going in. He's like twisting this cord together. He's making a whip. And then he starts like whipping people out and animals. And he's making a mess. And they're probably just like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? What? Jesus, Jesus. You know, and they're like, I think he's making a whip. Like, like this is not what anybody ever expected. And I've read some things, and there's some people who are like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus would never hit anybody. You know, this was, Jesus, this was not made for the people. But if you read it, it sure seems like it, right? It says, after making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out and their sheep and oxen. So he's, he's even specifically talking about the people and the animals. He's driving these people out. It's what we end up doing is we try to fit Jesus into our idea or our impression of what we think he should be like. And we have this complete misunderstanding of who Jesus actually is. Jesus is not some weak wimp who giggles every time we do something wrong. Like it's not him. He hates sin. And we see this is very offensive. And he responds in strength. He says he also poured out the money changers coins. And so there's, you know, Coins, Chuck E. Cheese coins flying all over the place, and he overturned the tables. And then he says, he told those who were selling doves, these people don't get whipped. I don't know what's going on here. He says, hey, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And, um, and it, all this is happening, and the disciples don't know what to do. And by the way, just to point out, Jesus doesn't immediately react like we usually do when we get angry. You ever do that? All right? 
Yeah, we're just that, by the way, when we do that, that's when we say things that we don't mean to say, and that's when we do things that we don't mean to do. Jesus doesn't do this. I don't know how long it takes him to make the whip, but I'm assuming it takes him a few minutes. It's not just an immediate reaction. And he knows what he's doing, and what he's doing is not wrong. It's actually good. And when Jesus starts driving everyone out, the whip's flying, people are flying, animals are running around all over the place, it says, his disciples remember that it is written all the way back in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament that zeal for your house will consume me. All right, it's like the Old Testament is God telling us exactly what the Messiah would be like, that he's got this special zeal. And probably the, Messiah, the disciples are all standing there like, if this ain't zeal, man, I don't know what is. Like, this is some zeal for God's house. It's interesting because the religious leaders, they have a different reaction. And the place is a mess. And so the Jews replied to him. They, they questioned him. They're like, hey, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They're like, who gives you the authority to turn over all this stuff? And maybe the news of him turning water into wine has, like, reached them. We don't really know. And so they're like, hey, I heard you did a sign, so we want to see a sign. But Jesus, he answers them in kind of a weird way. He says, hey, here's your sign. I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Remember, they're all standing there in the temple complex looking right at the temple. And the, the Jews are like, and the disciples are just like, what does that mean? And the Jews are like, we have no idea. And so they're like, hey, this temple took 46 years to build. And you're saying that you're going to raise it up in three days? Like you can build this thing in three days? Ain't no way. But he was actually speaking about the temple of his body. And so when he was raised from the dead, three years later from this moment, his disciples looked back and remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the statement that Jesus had made. And so they're there. All this is happening. He's already predicting his death. And then John tells us that while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so Jesus, however, he would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. Remember, he knows us. Okay, we have an issue knowing him. Like we have, we, have, we have an issue with our impression of him. He knows exactly who we are. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, because he knows what's inside of us, right, he knew, for he himself knew what was inside man. And so what's going on is Jesus, he's there, he spends the rest of the week there probably, and people are pumped. Like, people are excited about Jesus. They have this, like, intellectual belief. Why? Because they're watching him do all these miracles, and they cannot, like, you know, they, they're watching it with their own eyes. Like, they can't argue with it. It's just like, this is what's happening. And, but here's the deal. It's not just intellectual belief. Like, that's not what saves us. A true follower of Jesus wholeheartedly surrenders our life to Jesus. It's much more than intellectual belief. It's knowing, it's not, it's much more than knowing about Jesus it's about knowing him. It's not this idea or impression of what we think Jesus should be or what we think Jesus could be. It's about giving our life over to who Jesus actually is. And that's how chapter 2 ends. And as we begin this series, I really, really want us to start getting to know the real Jesus. Not something we saw in a stained glass window not something we watch, you know, some lame movie that we watch once or, you know, a Christian thing. I want us to get to know who Jesus actually is. I want us to meet him. And when we do that, and as we start reading the Bible, when we start reading John's account here, who's one of Jesus' right-hand guys, his be, one of, maybe his best friend, all right, our impression and our idea of who Jesus is 
it'll start to change. It'll start focusing, it'll start becoming more accurate of who Jesus is. And so that's my hope for us as we continue on next week and as we dive in for the next few months on John's account of Jesus' life. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for these words, and we thank you for John giving us, basically telling us what happened. Lord, you came down, and you didn't have to. We didn't earn it. You didn't owe it to us in any way. But you came down and eventually died for us. And God, we thank you so much for that. We can't thank you enough. Lord, we ask that as we go on into this week, as we start this new year, that uh, we would remember what you did for us and that we would learn and almost get to know you better. Make that a priority in our life. God, we thank you for this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.